If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to join me in Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to study a singular verse, and in my estimation, this is one of the most basic verses within all of Scripture. Not basic in the sense that it is devalued, but basic in the sense that it is foundational. We live in a world of fools, and the mere fact that we are here this morning declares that we are striving to walk wisely in it. And this verse helps us greatly in that regard. I found this interesting. One author said, since 1955... Sheer factual knowledge has doubled every five years. Our generation, he wrote, possesses more data about the universe and human personality than all previous generations put together. Think of it this way. High school graduates today have been exposed to more information about the world than Plato, Aristotle, and the Apostle Paul combined. In terms of facts alone, neither Aristotle nor the Apostle Paul could pass a college entrance exam today, along with a lot of us. Think about that and let that settle in. What is especially ironic, he concluded, is that it is striking that with all of the information that we have at our disposal. With all of the data that we have taken in, you think that the world would be a better place. But the fact is, with all our knowledge, the world is not a better place. In fact, it's in the same place it has always been. There is nothing new under the sun. We're in a world of fools. Nothing has changed except the speed of change. Again, what is striking is that author wrote that quote in ancient history back in a year known as 1983. So imagine how far advanced we are now past it. How can it be with all of our technological advancements? How can it be with all of our educational advancements that the world is not a better place Because we live in a world of fools, the verse that I'll read, verse 7 from Proverbs chapter 1, is a declaration. It's an absolute. There is no alternative to the truth of this statement. There is no substitute for what this verse prescribes. It unlocks wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise Wisdom and instruction. Can't miss the aim of this verse. Within the context of this verse, knowledge and wisdom and instruction are synonyms. What is it that we are striving toward? As believers, we live in a world of fools who are trying to walk wisely. What does that mean? If I were to define walking wisely, perhaps it would be best to say it in this way. It allows someone to make the right decision... For the right reason, at the right time, let's amplify it further, carried out in the right spirit so that it might attain the right effect. Now, fools have no capacity to make the right decision at the right time for the right reason. Cannot do it in the right spirit, therefore they do not attain the right result. A fool's unable to do it. 
Because of their disbelief of God. A fool in the Bible, as we have established, is not somebody with a low IQ. It is somebody, ultimately, who rejects the absolute truth concerning God and His Word. One said this, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And they that lack the beginning have neither the middle nor the end. Another said, there is no true knowledge apart from the fear of the Lord. All that pretends to be wisdom and ignores God is folly. We must understand what this verse is declaring to us. It is the key integer to navigating a world of fools by walking wisely. Without this, we will fail miserably. But in order for me to grasp, I have to go and truly comprehend what the fear of the Lord is. Now Solomon, who is writing this, is divinely gifted with wisdom that we cannot comprehend. We also know that he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is preserved for us to hear. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon is saying the fear of the Lord is the foundation. It is the single most important essential. The fear of the Lord is where it all begins. Beginning. That's what he says. Beginning, when you study that word out, it's used 50 times elsewhere in the scriptures. It's simply understood as something that is foundational or something that is best. Go a little further into that Hebrew root and you will grasp that it means head. It is primary. You cannot move forward unless you have this. In Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, Solomon says this again only a little differently. He writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So let me just back up and make it as simple as I can. The fear of the Lord is the foundation, it's the primary integer for me as I navigate life through a world of fools to make the right decision for the right reason at the right time, applied in the right spirit to attain the right effect. If I don't have the fear of the Lord, I cannot accomplish that. So what is the fear of the Lord? Should I walk around with an impending sense of dread and doom on me, cowering every time I think of the Lord? How many of you are familiar with that rush of adrenaline that arrives when you are definitely going faster than the speed limit? And you drive past a cop who is very sneakily hidden on the side of the road, and as you pass, you can see the radar gun, and your behavior changes in an instant. You pump the brakes, but not too hard. (laughs) Because in your mind, you don't want him to think you are going too fast, so it's a light tap and then off so he doesn't see the brake lights. But right down in here, in the pit of your stomach, you sense that an authority has seen you misbehaving. You ever been assigned a chore by your parents when you were little? And not having completed the assigned chore, your parents arrive home, and rather than think, oh, my mother and father are here, I should go shower them with love and affection, you think I have to pretend like I'm not here. Even though I'm seven, I have to pretend like I left for work a few hours ago. Fear. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, the Bible tells us initially they enjoyed fellowship with God. That he would walk with them and talk with them in the evening. But something pivoted, something changed when they sinned. And when they heard God walking after they had sinned, rather than affectionate 
relationship with him, they decided to hide. They were introduced to a new kind of fear. When I say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, do I mean that sensation, that rush of adrenaline? What is Solomon exactly saying to us? The fact is, he is teaching us that we have to recognize God for who he is. We have to ascribe to him reverence, and we must surrender to the authority that he is due. That's not a cowering fear. That is a reverential fear. That broad command involves that we understand several things about the Lord. If I'm going to fear the Lord, let me expand on that just a little for us as believers here. What does that mean, fear the Lord? Well, number one, it means this. We must understand that God is loving and God is just. We have to appreciate, we have to fear the Lord by appreciating his character. He is loving and he is just. We know that God is merciful. We grasp that he is forgiving, but he's also holy and just and righteous. We appreciate his character in that regard. We accept that as an absolute fact. But not only that, we fear the Lord and the fear of the Lord produces an awe in us. An awe. I use that word intentionally. It is a reverential awe of His holiness. It is an honor that we feel concerning His presence, His glory, His majesty, His purity, His power. It is a sensation of awe. Not only that, fear of the Lord produces faith. If I know that God is loving and I know that God is just, I appreciate his characters, I fear him in that way, it produces in me the awareness that the only way to salvation is through his prescribed method, that is Jesus. It causes believers to place their trust in him alone for salvation. It produces within me a confidence, a hope if I trust in him. Fearing God means that I am moved to belief and I am moved to trust. If I fear God, I know his characteristics. He's loving and he's just. It produces within me a sense of awe for his holiness, his majesty, his purity, his power. It breeds within me a faith, a confidence, a hope. Fearing God means I'm moved to belief and trust in him. And I'll recognize God's angry about sin. God hates sin. He hates sin more than I hate sin. My reverence, my fear of God causes me to acknowledge that God hates sin and that should alter my behavior. I am really good at excusing my sinful behavior. I am a master excuse maker. I am also a master prosecutor for other people's sins, their faults, their failures, their flaws. But I, as I fear God, I grasp that God is angry about sin. If I were to ask you how many of you love God, I think every hand in the room would go up, I love God. But as we're learning here, love of God is not enough. We must also fear Him. Fear goes hand in hand with love. If love is the positive side, maybe we could say fear is the negative side. Love prompts me to do what pleases God. Fear prompts me to refrain from what displeases God. So how do I develop this healthy, spiritual, necessary, foundational fear of God? It gets really deep. Here's how we develop 
a healthy fear of God. Number one, we study his word. That's how I develop a fear of God. I saturate my life with his word. A wise person in the Bible is one who knows where to take his or her questions, and that's the scripture. Listen to Psalm 119.38. Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Fear of the Lord is a relationship with the living word, that is Jesus, and the written word. They are inextricably linked. I cannot go through life in a world of fools and walk wisely if I am not saturating my life with the word. That's how I fear him. You ready for something that even goes deeper than that? Pray about it. Pray about it. That's the second integer. If I'm going to develop a fear of the Lord, I must pray that God will help me in that regard. Here is David praying in Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. So in this same context, David has said, I need you to establish your word in me. I am devoted to fear of you. The word is key. In these verses, David is begging, David is pleading for God to help him walk wisely, to help him maintain his commandments. In effect, he says, God, teach me lessons for living so I can stay the course. Give me insight so that I can do what you tell me. My whole life, one long, obedient response. Give me a bent for your words of wisdom. Divert my eyes from things. Preserve my life through your righteous ways. He's asking God to help him navigate life. Study the word, pray. It gets even deeper than that. Seek wise counsel. So much of the spiritual life that we are trying to succeed in is actually easier than we make it out to be in understanding how to accomplish it. The carrying out of it is certainly a challenge. But if I grasp the primary thing for me to walk wisely in a world of fools is to fear the Lord, I must develop it. And to develop that fear of the Lord, I have to be in His Word, I have to pray, and I have to have wise counsel. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's parents. That's peers. That's friends. They're always described through the book of Proverbs. Again, let me reiterate, a wise person in Scripture is somebody who admits they don't have all the answers. You have to be humble enough to grasp that you need wise counsel. Submission and humility are keys to fearing the Lord. All we've done simply is lay out one of the most basic verses in all of Scripture. No alternative, no way around it. This must be carried out as prescribed. It is the root, it's the head, it's foundational, it's primary. You must fear the Lord. You must fear him because of his attributes. Recognize them. He is loving and he is just. You must comprehend that an awe or reverence for his holiness and his justice and his power and his mercy must reside within you. That will produce faith, trust, confidence, an awareness that God hates sin. 
To align my life with that fear of the Lord, I must saturate my life with his word. I must pray that he helps me with it. And I must seek out wise counsel. It's so plain. It's primary. That's it. That's the foundation. That's the head of it all. And then he says two words that are really striking. But fools. Solomon says, let me tell you about the other side of the coin. Wise men do this, but fools do that. And then he uses a word, despise. That's a strong word. Despise, in a way, elicits an emotion. I don't enjoy eating cheese. Is there anyone else in here that doesn't like cheese? Like one or two, three. I don't know why I don't like cheese. It's probably a problem with my programming at birth. But I really hate strong cheeses. Like the more orange a cheese is, the more repulsed by it I am. And then there is... Blue cheese. (laughs) Now, I can say this to you. I don't like cheese, but I can eat melted mozzarella on a pizza. Very mild. I don't like cheese, but I can handle American cheese melted on a cheeseburger if there's enough meat and there's other stuff mixed in there. What I cannot stand, in fact, I would say I despise blue cheese. Why would I willingly ingest mold? (laughs) That is what is happening. You're looking at it. If that was on a piece of bread in your pantry, you would throw the loaf out. But now you say, add it in copious amounts to this salad. I want that mold. You understand the blue in blue cheese is cultured bacteria. Mmm. Now, why I bring that up is I can say to you, look, I don't like cheese. I can stand mozzarella. I don't mind American. I hate cheddar. I despise blue cheese. When I use that word, it elicits an emotion. We understand that things have been ratcheted up just a little bit. Despise. It speaks of contempt. Relational aloofness. This fool that despises wisdom and instruction is arrogant. He's above instruction. He's too smart for it. He's too good for it. He's too busy for it. To despise is not simply to ignore what God's word says. It is to devalue it. I don't want to know what God's word says. Now, if there are two categories in this verse, there's the wise and they fear the Lord, we must also grasp that there is the fool who despises wisdom and instruction. Solomon helps us all throughout the book of Proverbs. He tells us about the fool. And what I will tell you is we're going to take a quick look at the fool, and I guarantee you this, you and I are tainted with foolishness. Somewhere in this description of the fool, you will find some trait concerning you and concerning me. Here's what Solomon says. Number one, what do we know about the fool? The fool is arrogant. Proverbs 12, 15, here's what he says at the beginning of that verse. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He's arrogant. He's never wrong. 
Everything he says is the right thing to say. Everything he does is the right thing to do. Even if it isn't, as far as he is concerned, it is. In the time of the judges in the Old Testament, the great sin of the nation of Israel was there was no man of God, there was no leader, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. There were no absolutes, there were no rules, there were no parameters, there were no boundaries, and the fool lives his life that way. One said this of the arrogant fool, those who most need counsel are often least ready to receive it, because the fool is arrogant. Not only is the fool arrogant, he is unforbearing. You see, that sounds incredibly biblical. It actually is. The fool is unforbearing, Proverbs twelve sixteen. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. What does that mean? In other words, the prudent man, the wise man, holds back his feelings of anger. He holds in his feelings of dishonor while the fool vents his indignation on the spot with passionate words and passionate activity. He blows his stack. That's what the fool does. The fact is, his wrath is presently known. If he feels it, he says it. If he thinks it, he opines about it. If he senses it, he lets you know it. That's how the fool lives. They're unforbearing. There is no long fuse. It's a short fuse. They think it, they say it. And the fact is, it's sin. Sometimes we excuse things like a bad temper and we'll say it's a personality trait of mine. Everybody knows if you're around me, I'm going to say what I think. Can I tell you what else they think about you? Well, you know, my wife and kids just know when I'm tired, that's what I do. If you knew the home that I grew up in, that's how we talk to each other. Let me, let me help you with something. Blowing your stack and making your wrath presently known is not a personality trait. It's not a product of your environment. It is sin. That's what it is. One said, a weak-minded man has no self-government He is easily angered and generally speaks whatever comes first to his mind. You ever find somebody who's hot and says what they think and cannot refrain from saying it? The Bible says, be not friends with an angry man. With a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways. The Bible so devalues the angry man that it says, Don't even be friends with them. You must put them in check. If you have somebody who cannot rule their spirit, if you have someone that is not slow to anger, put them at a distance. The fool's wrath is presently known. He is unforbearing. He blows his stack. Now I'm telling you, that's in me. There are some times I know I shouldn't say something, but like indigestion, it sits in the middle of my chest, and I think everybody should know what I think, because what I think is pretty much the right thing to think, which goes back to the first point, a fool is arrogant. And I think I shouldn't say it, but if I don't say it, then it's like I'm going to lose I don't want to lose, so i got to say it. A fool's wrath is presently known. Here's what Solomon says, a fool is unteachable. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. 
He goes on and he says in Proverbs 26, 11, this is a very vivid verse, a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. That's really descriptive, is it not? It is intended to repulse us. Imagine a dog eating its own puke. I don't want to. Right. That's what Solomon is doing. He's trying to insult us. He's trying to provoke within us a sense of disgust. That's what it looks like when a fool returns to his folly because he's unteachable. In fact, he won't just not learn. The fool cannot imagine himself as being mistaken. The root of his problem is not mental. Ultimately, it is a spiritual problem. He constantly returns to his folly like a dog who goes back and eats the very thing which made him sick in the first place. Why? He's unteachable. You just can't get through to him. He's unmanageable. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every Fool will always be meddling. Every fool will always be meddling. Most men, wise men, consider it an honorable thing to bring an end to an argument. But a fool loves contention. They love to argue for argument's sake. It's just that they cannot rest unless there is contention. Solomon is always very vivid in the Proverbs and his imagery. He speaks of a man who walks by an argument that he is not involved in. And yet he engages in the argument just because it's there. He likens it to grabbing a dog by the ears and shaking the dog, getting bit, and then looking at the dog like, what was that all about? That's how a fool lives his life. You always have to be in some form of contention. You always have to be right. You always have to be arguing with somebody. You always have to have a leg up. You always have to be installing, pressing in your opinion, your ideals. But a prudent man, he finds a way to peace. He navigates a way to peace. He brings an end to an argument. But the fool's unmanageable. The fool is uncorrectable. Now that's a little different than unteachable on a spiritual level because there is an irredeemable side to foolishness because the Bible says they deny the existence of God and only God can rescue them from foolishness. And we see this in our world. The fact is where there is no God, anything is permissible. That's the reason Solomon wrote fools make a mock at sin. Now, I want to read a verse that I know is probably going to confuse you just a little bit. A fool is uncorrectable. The fool persists, loving his arrogant self-view and sinful lifestyle so much. Here's what Solomon says of him. Though thou shouldest bray him, get this. Though thou shouldest bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, Yet will not his foolishness depart from him. You're sitting there like, no, I totally understand that one. Easy. I know what a pestle is. I know what bray is. I think I actually know what mortar and weed are. What is Solomon saying? Here's what Solomon is saying about the fool. If you, and this is an agricultural image, if you take an implement and you pound wheat down to powder, you, you bray it with a pestle in a mortar, 
He's saying if you take a fool in effect and you beat them down to powder, you cannot beat the foolishness out of them. They are simply unredeemably uncorrectable because they deny God. The fool is unholy. Psalm 14.1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They, Proverbs 14.9 says, make a mock at sin. Fools literally mock guilt. They are committed to unholy living. They mock those who have moral absolutes. By biblical definition, a fool is someone whose mind is closed to God. Their conscience is seared to sin. Their heart is fully devoted to self. Now, if you were honest, I don't have to call you a fool. Jesus warns us in the New Testament even about that. But we would have to admit that our lives are certainly stained or tainted with foolishness. At times, the attributes of a fool as Solomon describes them are readily apparent in my life. I am arrogant at times. For those of you like, yeah, you are. At times. I am unteachable, unmanageable. I am non-forbearing. I am uncorrectable. I am certainly at times unholy. The fact is, all of us are tainted with foolishness in desperate need of wisdom. One said, we must forsake the fool within named self decisively and endlessly. Change of being is not brought about by straining and willpower, but by a long, deep process of unselfing. And that can only be done with the help of the Holy Spirit. Devaluing ourselves. You say, well, we live in a world where we're taught that that's the wrong thing to do. I don't mean that we think less of ourselves. In a human sense, but I do mean we humble ourselves with the knowledge that we have of God. Someone else said, those who choose against God's way disrupt society, shame their families, and bear the dreadful consequences. Their basic lack is not intelligence quotient, educational opportunity, or positive examples. They're not so much stupid as wicked. Ever met those people? You ever met a smart fool? Turn on the TV. You ever met somebody who is an educated idiot? You ever met somebody who has got a PhD in wickedness? The fact is, they're fools. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools... They despise wisdom and instruction. Which category are you and I in? Let me tell you a story to close out. It's a simple story. It's an antiquated story. It comes from a few generations ago. As a pastor in the Philadelphia area. He told this quaint story. He said, several years ago, I married a young couple. They were very much and still are very much in love with one another. They had met when they were 13 and 14, had never looked at anyone else and never would all their lives. He said, I saw them in church the next Sunday, greeted them with a little pleasantry, and I asked the groom if his bride had burned the roast for the first dinner she prepared, thus seemingly antiquated. 
They both laughed. And she said, oh, I was afraid I was going to. I'd read so much about the bride being unable to cook that I decided he was going to have the very best meal a bride could prepare for her husband. She said, so I began about three o'clock. I got everything out and started to work. When I finally put things on to cook, I wanted everything to turn out well, and I was afraid they wouldn't. And of course, he had to be a little late, and I was so afraid things would be spoiled. Pastor said, so I interrupted, and I said to the young bride, you've said three times you were afraid. Did you think he was going to leave you? She smiled and said, of course not. And she looked at him with all the love of her heart in her eyes. The pastor said, I persisted. You said you were afraid. She broke in. You know what I mean. He said, of course I knew what she meant. Her fear was not fright. Her fear was a great desire to serve the one to whom she's given herself entirely. And in this case, he summarized, the fear of her husband was the beginning of good cooking. The fear of her husband was the beginning of good cooking. Now, if I said that in a lot of settings, people would say, you better acknowledge that's a generational antiquated story. Right, right. And I'm going to door dash when I get home too. I'm a modern husband. (laughs) I get it. I haven't had a burnt roast. Do you grasp what is being communicated in the simple story? The fear of her husband was the beginning of good cooking. Why is it that we are so perplexed in a foolish world, on how to navigate our way successfully through it. I mean, there's a lot to life. There's the workspace and the family space and the church space. There's relational activity all around us. The fact is, holy fear is a desire to please the one who loves you more than anyone else can ever love you. It begins with a sense of fright. I don't want judgment upon my sin, no doubt. But it doesn't stay that way. For I am not condemned in the Lord. If we put an emphasis on obeying the laws of a frightening God, that'll produce an unhealthy kind of fear. That's the fear that results in legalism. That's a slavish fear that we have of a punishing master. That is not what this is about. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 8.15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I'm not talking about a slavish fear where I have a punishing master who's going to beat me senseless if I don't carry out every explicit thing. I have a merciful father who loves me and it is my love for him and my fear of him that go hand in hand. And gradually the right kind of fear of God will drive out the fear of man. For if I fear God as I should, I will fear nothing. I will fear no one else. One said the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. The foundation, the primary thing. This is as basic as it can possibly get. The beginning of knowledge. Navigating our way through this world, being able as individuals to make the right decision at the right time for the right reason, carried out in the right spirit to attain the right result is possible. It's doable if we'll fear the Lord. How? 
saturate our lives with his word, pray for him to help us, seek wise counsel. And whenever we confront foolishness in us, to whatever degree we relentlessly root it out of our lives and confess it and repent it before a merciful God who will help us. The fact that you're here this morning declares that you are striving to walk wisely. Can I tell you that's a great start. Would you bow your heads just for a moment with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.